This podcast is brought to you by the Dunfield Retirement Residence, a casually elegant retirement community located at Young and Eglinton in the heart of Midtown Toronto. Customized living options complement your independent, active lifestyle. Learn more at thedunfield.com. This is Bonjour Hi, the Two Solitudes edition. I'm Avi Feingold in Montreal, and I'm here with Alana Zakon in Montreal and David Sklar in Calgary. We are your Frozen Chosen. On today's show, campus politics. Palestinian activists are scared, but so are Jews. We speak to Kenneth Stern, the very man who drafted the IRA definition, to find out about how two opposing groups can feel exactly the same thing. We also speak to Michelle Fried of Resetting the Table about how people with very opposing views can actually speak to each other with depth and humanity. But first, a word from our sponsor. Are you in the market for a new watch or a special piece of jewelry? Are you looking for the perfect engagement ring to pop the question? Atelier Lou has all this and more. Eric and the team at Atelier Lou can craft a piece for you, or you can select from some of the exclusive designers that they offer. From a simple bangle to a statement necklace, Atelier Lou can make you or your loved ones sparkle. Located in the heart of Westmount in Montreal or online at atelierlou.com, visit Atelier Lou for your next watch or jewelry purchase. And when you do, make sure to use promo code BON18 for 10% off your next purchase. That's atelierlou.com. Last month, a study came out called Unveiling the Chilly Climate, the Suppression of Speech on Palestine in Canada. Its authors say they spent a year collecting research, including just under 80 testimonies from university faculty, students, and activists who face regular harassment, intimidation, and fewer long-term effects of speaking out for Palestinian human rights. In particular, the respondents claim that the institutional adoption of the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance Working Definition of Antisemitism, otherwise known as the IRA definition, has had a chilling effect on any open discussion of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. To be completely fair, the group that commissioned and released the report, Independent Jewish Voices, is an openly partisan organization. They're strong supporters of the Palestinian cause and are committed to the BDS movement against Israel. And according to the researchers, all the respondents in the study were granted anonymity to shield them from further reprisals. So getting a strong read on how seriously to take the data and findings is difficult, as it would be for any partisan organization. But even so, the report brings forward issues worth grappling with for the Canadian Jewish community. On the one hand, advocates for Palestinian human rights on campus feel that any attempt to express their political beliefs puts them in danger of being tarred as anti-Semites and supporters of terrorism, and potentially leaves them open to reputational and academic harm. At the same time, there is a mirrored feeling amongst Jewish students that if they talk about ties to Israel or refuse to condemn, let alone support Israel's actions, they will be called out as racist and colonialist. So today we're asking, how can two dynamics exist at the same time? What evidence or data do we have that might shed light on how well-founded both these sets of fears are? And does the presence of evidence really matter to the emotional reality of any of the students involved? To help us unpack all of this is Kenneth S. Stern, a lawyer, writer, and current director of the Bard Center for the Study of Hate. Ken was the lead drafter of the IRA definition of anti-Semitism and is also the author of several books, including his 2020 book, The Conflict Over the Conflict, the Israel-Palestine Campus Debate, published by the University of Toronto Press. Ken, welcome to Bonjour Chai. Thank you so much for having me. It's my pleasure. So um, one can easily start um, in an, in any number of places. If we can just start and move it out of the way without having to spend too much time on it. Um, you had published a piece about uh, in 2019 already about drafting the definition of anti-Semitism and how the right-wing Jews are weaponizing it. Can you first, you know, try to explain for our listeners uh, who may not know what you know, the IRA working definition is, which I cannot even imagine, right? What do you think the original intentions behind it were? What are some of the frustrations you laid out in this opinion piece and how this is being used? 
Sure. Well, you know, the, to, the larger frame of all this is it's very contentious on campus on both sides, on Israel and Palestine. I'm sure we'll talk about that more. But the IRA definition uh, story is basically this. Um, back in the early 2000s, when the peace process collapsed and there, there was the second intifada, there was an uptick on attacks on Jews, particularly in, in Europe and Western Europe. And there was a group called the EUMC that had the responsibility of collecting data on that. And they put out a report in 2004 that was, was pretty good in terms of its findings. It talked about not only the you know, right-wing supremacists, but also young Arab and Muslim folks and outskirts of Paris and so forth being responsible for attacks. But it talked about two things in particular that caught my attention. One was it said, wait a minute, we have all these data collectors in different points of Europe. There's no common definition to guide us in terms of what to include or to exclude on reports about anti-Semitism. And they also you know, posited the question, what do you do if a Jew is attacked as a stand-in for an Israeli? Is that anti-Semitism or not? And they came to a conclusion, well, if the person had certain stereotypes about Jews and applied them to Israelis and then reapplied them to the Jew in front of them, that was anti-Semitism, but not if they attacked a Jew, lamentable as that might be, in response to an Israeli action. So it just so happened that the head of that group was coming to an AJC meeting, and I challenged her on that because um, a couple of weeks beforehand, there was a Montreal day school that was firebombed in reaction to an Israeli assassination of a Hamas leader, not anti-Semitism, according to what they were doing. So we worked together, um, and I was a lead drafter with a, a group of people to put together something that was primarily designed for bean counters, what to include and what to exclude, and also to understand if you were attacking a Jew simply because they were the Jew. It didn't matter if they liked Jews, they didn't like Jews, they thought Jews were rich or poor. If a Jew was selected, that was sufficient. So that's what happened. The definition was for other purposes, and it's really become revitalized as a, as a tool on, on campus. And there are other ways that pro-Palestinian folks uh, sometimes have a chilling effect on, on Jewish students. Um, so it's not all in one direction. Sure. But I wrote that article because I don't like the idea of instruments of state. Uh, being used, especially in, in free speech and academic freedom areas. And there's also an internal Jewish question here, which is at the heart of this, which is whether it, uh, being Jewish requires a particular attitude towards Israel. Mm -hmm. And that's a difficult debate. I'm a Zionist, but I'm not going to you know, excommunicate non-Zionist or anti-Zionist Jews. But I don't want the state making that determination, which is what seems to be happening when IRA is adopted and applied in these situations. Going back to the framing that we spoke about at the beginning, um, how off base am I in seeing this framing that there are two sides that both feel that they are incredibly victimized by what's going on on campus in general? Well, there, there's there are a couple aspects of it. One is if you look at least in the in the United States, there are about four thousand campuses. Israel is not a burning issue on most of them. It's a small amount, right? And if you look at the number of uh, pro-Israel versus anti-Israel programming. Uh, on campus, it's usually two to one pro-Israel versus anti-Israel. That being said, there are some very difficult situations and hot spots where people do feel um, not only that they're being oppressed, but that people are trying to, you know, vilify them. Uh, I have in my book, um, you know, examples, some of which was in the report you were talking about too, where pro-Palestinian folks were called terrorists, but the flip side, pro-Israel folks were also called Nazis. As a matter of fact, people talked to you know, try to 
compare uh, other side with Nazis and then say, wait a minute, you wouldn't have a cup of coffee with a Nazi. You wouldn't sit down and have a pleasant conversation with a Nazi. So when you get to that point where the sort of simplicity in the binary, which is what I look at my day job of, of hatred, the us versus them, we want to make the world simple. Uh, and then we vilify them and we try to say that they should not actually have a platform. And that's the problem on campus to me because the irony is it's a great place to figure out for young people in particular, none of whom are, by the way, going to solve the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, but it's a great place to learn how do you get disturbed by ideas, how do you deal with that, how do you have rational discussions with people with whom you might fundamentally disagree. And we're losing that. Both sides are trying to uh, use the campus, campus as a um, battleground uh, over the issue as opposed to using the campus to say we have an obligation to each other, to as students, as faculty members, and to figure out how we're going to have these difficult discussions. So there's pushes to, to really uh, have the other side not be empowered uh, to speak and to see it as something uh, noble. I mean, the irony I have in my book was that a uh, pro-Israel advocate at a conference wouldn't, uh, named Ken Marcus, uh, would not share a stage with somebody named Dima Khalidi, who was the head of Palestine Legal, because he said that, you know, it's like, I wouldn't go on stage with a Holocaust denier. And, and she's a lawyer. She has a different point of view. I disagree with her. But to not engage in a conversation, and I was part of a conference a couple of weeks ago where it turned around she was refusing to go on a panel with Yehuda Kurtzer, Shalom Hartman, um, for mirror images. And so I think, you know, you're absolutely right. Each side is trying to, you know, to stop the other uh, from speaking and feeling very noble about it. I mean, I wrote a piece recently where... It was about some of the two campuses, so it's not ubiquitous, where there were uh, groups that had nothing to do with Israel-Palestine and like sexual assault victims um, that said, you, you know, we're not going to allow Zionists to be part of this group. Well, OK, so they became an anti-Zionist group in addition to that, too. But, you know, they had a right to do that. But it, that struck me. And a lot of what I see in, in this debate strikes me on both sides is sort of McCarthyism in the sense that. Here's a point of view. It's not legitimate, and you can't uh, participate in normal things on campus if you have that view. Um, you know, so if you were an anti-communist in the fifties, you felt justified in saying mm -hmm. we're not going to allow communists in. Uh, on a campus, you allow everybody in. You treat you know the ideas as opposed to uh, vilifying people, and that that to me is is really a, a part of the problem. Um, speaking about campuses, right, and uh, you know. As this conversation is happening, I keep going back to this idea in my mind. And I was a student, and I was very involved. Um, I was president of Hillel. This was right at the beginning of the Second Intifada. It was very difficult. I was dealing with many Palestinian causes. I was in the dean's office, you know, all the time. Um, but I remember having this moment thinking to myself, like, I came to school to get an education in psychology and philosophy and in Jewish studies. Like, I was I was doing my thing. And, you know, campus life is is... In theory, yes, it's supposed to be the time when you get to debate and discuss all of these questions and issues. Um, but on the one hand, campus life is kind of cushy and easy. Um, and you're supposed to go do something. You don't have to go and make this your cause célèbre and make it something big. Um, but the bigger, you know, framing in my mind now as an adult is to say to myself, there is no persecution, right? The way that it's 
being stuff is happening, you know, actually on the other side of the world, right? Um, we're recording this, and there was a bomb that went off um, in Jerusalem. There will be reprisals on, um, you know, I, I undoubtedly, right, on the Palestinian side. Um, the the person on campus who says that I feel persecuted, you know, they're not they're not in Ramallah. They're not in Sderot, where a rocket is fired, being fired on them. They're not in Jerusalem. How much of this, like, do we? have to take a step back and say, like, what's going on here? Like, why is everybody sitting and fighting over something? And it's, it's the ultimate first world problem when we're, we're not actually there and we're not the victims in the real way. I have no problem with people being passionate about Israel and Palestine. Um, a lot of Jewish students on both sides are, uh, for a variety of reasons, become a, a fundamental cause for many people around the world. It's the home of Israel. It's the home of you know three major religions. The United States gives Israel a lot of money. I mean, there are a whole bunch of reasons why people may may care about it. But your larger point, you know, is right. I mean, one hand, in terms of my college experience, I was at the end of the Vietnam War era. I have no problem with students getting politically active. I think that's a great way to test out ideas and so forth. It just doesn't mean that you should, you know, vilify and harass. Um, you know, your, your, uh, fellow students, there's a importance that Bob Hess, who was a Jewish president of Brooklyn college years ago, used to talk about the myth of the institution. We're all Brooklyn college students. We're all students in the same institution. And, you know, you should be able to, uh, care about the impact of what you're advocating has on other students. I mean, Pro-Israel students should see uh, the impact on pro-Palestinian students and vice versa when people try to exclude Zionists, even though they think that that's a righteous thing, at least think about what it's doing to a student for whom Zionism is a key part of your identity. And, you know, in terms of the context of the world, look, Bard, uh, where my center is, brought in students from Afghanistan. It's brought in students from uh, Ukraine. There was just a, a message today about what are we doing for students who are being targeted in Iran in the current protests. You know, these are real problems that students would love to be in a place where they're discomforted by a, uh, a debate. Um, you know, so I think that's an important perspective to keep in mind. So what does the, um, if I had to ask you personally, right, um, where should, what's our target? Where should we be aiming towards to say, let's work towards that and not towards, you know, complete delegitimization of another side or um, let's hope to win, um, you know, because, because we're not going to, nobody's going to win in this. That's a great question. I'll, I'll give you the example of what happened to me. I was part of the National Lawyers Guild in the early 1980s. I was representing, uh, at the time, the co-founder of the American Indian Movement, a lot of very progressive folks. And I started writing in 1982 about the anti-Semitism I saw in some of the demonstrations against the Lebanon War. And I was part of those demonstrations too, but I was disturbed by the anti-Semitism. And people were saying, wait a minute, you're hurting the Palestinian cause. And part of the problem was that I was a Zionist. So I, I basically left that. But, you know, to reflect and put it on a campus situation, as much as I wished the guild's, you know, decision had been different about its politics, it was a decision about politics. And I would not have wanted an administration on a campus, if that was the, the context of it, to say you have to allow these students in. So you engage. It's messy politics. I understand the hurt. Um, 
I encourage administrators to understand that students are going to feel hurt this way. You want to have them be supported, but you don't want to have outside forces uh, or even administration say there's a certain orthodoxy of what you have to believe in. Um, so you can start your own groups to counter groups, uh, try to get these groups to to understand that um, you know they're sort of not really being serious about the issues that they're working on if being a Zionist is a bar to it. And to give you one final example of it, uh, Years ago, I was part of a, a group that was f- focusing in the Northwest against neo-Nazis, against mm-hmm. the anti-gay ballot initiatives and so forth, and bringing together uh, academics, law enforcement, human rights groups, ethnic groups, religious groups, and so forth. And somebody said, wait a minute, if you're against hate, you have to be pro-choice. We need to have a platform here. And I'm pro-choice. But I said, wait a minute, I want nuns to be part of the demonstrations against neo-Nazis and the bombing of of abortion clinics. I don't want to exclude them. There are other places to have that advocacy. And I think that's right. It it hurts, but, you know, it's politics. If if I had to wrap things up, I know that, you know, hindsight is always 20-20 and uh, we cannot put the cat back into the bag. Um, But if you were to rewrite the uh, working definition, the draft of whatever it is that you had written uh, for these bean counters back then, knowing that it might get weaponized in this way, what would you have written differently that may have tried to straddle both sides? You know, it's a great question. And I don't know that I, given the purpose of what it was intended to do, I don't know that I would have written it differently. There may be a little points here and there that I might have tweaked, but the problem is not the definition. The problem is the, the abuse of the definition and the using it to, you know, to weaponize against particularly pro-Palestinian speech. You know, the parallel would be, what if there were a definition of anti-Black racism and it had political examples in it, opposition to affirmative action or opposition to Black Lives Matter or opposition in the United States of removing of Confederate statues? You know, people would see, ah, that's a problem when you try to put that on a campus, it's going to restrict speech. But people don't see that in, in this case. And one of the things that is really interesting to me, I don't know if you've been following up in Canada, the you know stories in the press recently here about Kanye West and Kyrie Irving. Um, okay. And, you know, and allegations about Chappelle's thing on Saturday Night Live. It's interesting. I have uh, maybe I missed it, but I didn't see anybody saying, "Oh, let's apply the IRA definition." Even people who are accusing them of de- of anti-Semitism, that wasn't being used. It's only, in my view, for things dealing with uh, Palestinian and Israeli issues uh, that people are employing it, and that should give us some pause. One other example, which is heartbreaking to me because it comes from Canada. There was a debate recently about whether a particular school district should adopt the definition, mm-hmm. and there was a, yeah, there was a 15, there was a 15-year-old who made this incredible, heartfelt video about, you know, people throwing pennies and all types of, of bullying. And it came to the, what was her ask? The IRA definition. Well, I could tell you, there's nothing about pennies in the IRA definition. And to think, and to think that somehow this has become a flag that you adopt this and that, that takes care of anti-Semitism. 
to me, that's a real challenge because if you look at how anti-Semitism works, again, in the United States, you know, I'm more familiar than in Canada, but, you know, the Tree of Life synagogue, right, was mm-hmm. attacked. Why? Because there was a fevered pitch about immigrants coming across the border and the shooter thought that because Hyas had been meeting there, Jews were somehow responsible and shot mm-hmm. up the Jews. Nobody you know, sees the the pushing of us versus them, and that inevitably leads to anti-Semitism. Anti-Semitism, you want a core part of it, it's in the IRA definition, it's in the JDA definition, it's in the Nexus definition, stated differently, differently, but it's basically two components. Anti-Semitism is conspiracy theory about Jews harming non-Jews, and it's an explanation for what goes wrong in the world. For the Marjorie Taylor Greens, it's Jews with space lasers, right? Who knew? But the point is- Wait, you didn't get your- Oh, I'm not supposed to talk about it on the air. You, I, you didn't I, get I, your space I, laser? I, I, no, I think the FedEx didn't deliver it. It's okay. You know, I always have problems with them. But the, you know, the point is when you build up in society an idea that some people among us are them- and they are a danger to us, whether it's Muslims, whether it's immigrants, you know, any group. Uh, it's inevitable that when people feel themselves losing to these other groups and they're saying, wait a minute, how could we possibly be losing to people that we find as inferior? It's inevitable that they're going to stumble upon, in fact, frequently endorse anti-Semitic conspiracy theories, because that explains to them why they're losing. So when we basically narrow the question about anti-Semitism, what are they saying about Jews? Is it or is it not inside this very narrow template? We're missing the things that actually drive it. And that's one of the, the, the you know, the scary things for me. And it's reflected in that video of that poor, you know, young girl um, who somehow got sold that somehow the world is going to be made right if the school district adopts IRA. There are other things to do. Uh, I've worked with schools about bullying and harassment and so forth. Believe me, adopting the IRA definition isn't the, the key component of what they ought to be doing for their students. What I was going to say is that when we when we um, add in the uh, uh, the intra-Jewish issue, that that's just as much it. When we other, um, you know, anti-Zionists, right? Um, that's another way of saying that my brand, right? It's just as much an us versus theming uh, of that. And so when you go and condemn a group that is Jewish and staunchly Jewish, but is anti-Zionist or has questions about the Zionist project, right? You are just as much othering. That's right. Kenneth Stern, thank you for joining Bonjour Chai. You're welcome back anytime. Thank you very much. My, uh, my gratitude for having me. Coming up, David and Alana talk to Michelle Fried of Resetting the Table about how to have a less toxic conversation about Israel. Did you know April 2023 is Israel's 75th anniversary? In honor of this huge milestone, UJA Federation of Greater Toronto is planning an epic trip to Israel, and all of Canada is invited. Israel's anniversary, Yom Ha'atzma'ut, is a -a one-of-a-kind experience. Streets are filled with parties, fireworks, music, and dancing. On UJA's Israel 75, you'll get to join the celebration. 75 is not a regular anniversary, and Israel 75 is not your typical trip. You'll get a truly unique experience of the country, no matter how many times you've been before. 
With 10 specialized tracks, you can create an itinerary that is totally personalized, whether you're a foodie, an adrenaline seeker, a TV buff, or politically minded. The best part? You can mix and match tracks on different days. Embark on a thrilling adventure one day and a culinary experience the next. Let your own interests be your guide and experience everything Israel has to offer. To learn more about the trip, visit UJAIsrael75.com. That's UJAIsrael75.com. There's this ideal version for Shabbat dinners and family gatherings where everyone comes together and bonds and enjoys each other's company. But then someone brings up Israel, or a questionable celebrity tweet, or anything about Trump. And suddenly the battle lines are drawn, each one is parroting some hot take on a podcast, and the whole meal becomes a lot less pleasant. People walk away feeling hurt, angry, and disdainful. And family gatherings turn into something you dread instead of cherishing. For our second segment today, we're looking at how Jewish families and organizations can have healthier, less painful discussions around political topics. With our American listeners heading to Thanksgiving dinner this weekend, and many of us eyeing down the first in-person holiday gatherings we might have had in three years, three years where the political climate has only become sharper and more fractious to boot, we're hoping to talk about how families can navigate these topics in a way that everyone feels safe, especially with family members who have had a more limited vocabulary when it comes to emotional sensitivity. Joining us for the conversation is Michelle Freed, a senior trainer and facilitator with Resetting the Table. Founded in 2014, Resetting the Table brings together people from across political divides and teaches them how to have deeper and more meaningful conversations, minimizing antagonism and avoidance. Their goal isn't to help groups reach consensus, but to provide techniques that allow people with deep differences to see each other in all their humanity. Michelle Freed, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Good to be here. So, Michelle, I want to know if we can go on a bit of a thought experiment here. So if you would join me on the Bonjour Chai time machine, if you would, okay? It's a few weeks from now. I'm setting down for a nice Hanukkah dinner with all my family and friends. And just as I'm about to eat my first taste of latka, right at the end of the table, Uncle Steve's voice booms out and says, Can you believe these politically correct uber-woke kids these days? I hear they're starting to make Jewish free spaces on every university campus. And then Susie, the sister-in-law, always the life of the party, jumps in and says, I know, it's crazy. All they ever do is criticize Israel, the only democratic Jewish state. But what about Qatar? They don't let women drive there, and then they have the World Cup. It's ridiculous. And finally, Eric, the cousin from Toronto, comes in with the real kicker. Yeah, what about those queers against Israeli apartheid? They wouldn't even allow someone to be gay if the Palestinians had their way. He then turns to me and says, David, you're gay, right? I mean, how crazy are these people, right? And assuming I haven't melted away and tried to avoid all this by staring into my phone and doing some doom scrolling, how the hell can I begin to handle these types of conversations? So David, the first first thing I just want to name is that's that's a hard situation to be in, right? When you're in the context um, of a Shabbat dinner table or a Hanukkah party where people who you love or are in relationship um, have taken a conversation that has really escalated um, to the point where it has right now. And, you know, the first thing that I, I want to say, right, in a moment like this um, is to, to zoom out, right, and to consider what it might be that would 
really encourage you or bring you to wanting to have a conversation across real difference in the first place. And if in this situation you want to engage, right, then part of it is figuring out what will that be and what will that look like for you um, in that situation. So David, I I actually, I'd, I'd love to turn it to you and ask like in that situation for yourself, what's happening for you? And is it a conversation that you want to engage with? Because I think step one is making the decision for yourself, right? That this is a conversation that I know might be hard, might be difficult, but one that I want to actually start to engage in. A big, a big perspective from us is also saying, you know, within conversations across real difference, there's a lot of value that can come from it. And nobody should be forced into a conversation that they don't want to have within that moment as well. But there's a lot of choice that's involved in it too. So David, so if, if I'm here, you know, yeah. If I'm hearing from you, people who want to, let's say, not engage with their family members or anything like that, they sort of just can disengage. And that's a that's an appropriate tactic that you would sort of suggest, too. But if if, you know, I want to be poking the bear here and there, I sort of say, no, I, I want to double down and I want to maybe have some pushback or anything like that. How how can you have an appropriate amount of pushback, but at the same time, be respectful of this dinner that you don't want to see blow up in your face? Absolutely. So. The first thing that I would say is if you have any sort of pushback, right, you first want to be able to create the conversational conditions where people are going to be able to hear whatever the pushback is that you might have for them as well. And the way that we talk about this um, is that if, you know, we're we're taking, let's say, the the conversation that you just described, um, where there's real differences present, right, there can be a way in which um, we become marked by a number of tendencies, most acutely by a sense of real rigidity and also of disconnection with the people in which we're speaking with. And so to make this a little bit more concrete, right, oftentimes when we hear, you know, things that we disagree with or that we want to push back on, we become marked and, you know, with this and take a a defensive posture, right? Really defending whatever our own positions are, pushing back against that which we, we really reject as well. And so in these moments, we become so focused on what our own convictions are, our own beliefs, that we get closed off also to the experiences of the people who are right in front of us, even if we love them very much, let alone if they're from what we might consider the opposing camp right? And so instead of really hearing them, what we're listening to do here is prepare our own rebuttal, right? To, to push our challenge forward. And that is a very rigid posture of listening to one another that produces this disconnection, this me and us against them. These are the least effective conditions for a conversation to go well, to be able to really happen and take place. And that opportunity for successful communication across difference, successful even pushback, isn't really, be, isn't really able to be realized. Um, and so what, we, what we're going to want to do, right, is shift those con- conditions from, you know, rigidity, from disconnection into what we call a real sense of receptivity and connection with each other, meaning the capacity to be able to take each other in even if we hold really strong differences with each other there. And so what I would say is, right, there's a number of tools and skills that we teach and lean into that are going to help really create those shifts from rigidity and disconnect 
into a real place of receptivity and connection and stability with the people in which we're having the conversation. Do you want me to go through the steps now of like what that might be and what that might look like, right? With, I do, I do want, I yeah. do want you to go through the steps, but yeah. a little thought in the back of my head yeah. is if you are in this situation and you're sitting around at a family dinner and you know, some people are harder to get to really listen, especially not to stereotype, but when they're older, people can become more set in their ways. It's just a fact. Um, I'm having a hard time imagining me sitting at a table and being like, okay, everyone, I learned this technique from this, um, you know, company, uh, who focuses on helping have these conversations and let's all take three steps back. I just can't really picture that happening if it wasn't in like a work setting or, you know, like a school setting or somewhere where people are there to like be professional or to work together. How do you, you know, after you explain the steps, I'd love to hear some tips on how to actually implement that into a family setting or a friend setting, like a more casual setting. Absolutely. And yeah, I wouldn't recommend probably in any right uh, setting to say, I learned some skills from this company. Let me, let me try them out on you, right? But really, rather what you're going to want to do is just take stock for yourself, right? Like first, first really intentionally say, I actually want to have this conversation differently, Right. So often when we're in in conversation, it can lead into these big patterns, right, of like either really antagonistic, toxic communication, right? Or we pull out, we avoid it altogether. Right. Or we only have the conversations that we care about when we're gonna do that with people who we already know agree with us. Right. And we kind of self-silo into our own echo chambers. And so here, if you recognize you're in a, a place of difference. Right. And, and the conversation is happening. Usually you might recognize like it starts to, to go a little quicker. Right. First and foremost, work to slow it down. Right. And by way of doing that, right, when you hear somebody offer, let's say, a statement, right, really position yourself to try to pause your own reactions for a moment. Right. And rather than quickly responding to whatever it might be, ask a question right? Based on what they just said. Ask a question that's going to help you really work to unearth or extract what is it that actually matters to the person, you know, in, in terms of what they just spoke and offered, um, right? So, so, time, so oftentimes when we start our political conversations, we start with our analyses, our exchange of facts on a political topic, and we just skip over Right. What are the life experiences, the motivations that are really leading to the convictions that somebody has and deeply, deeply holds around a particular topic? So I'd say first and foremost, slow it down and really see if you can ask questions to the person that's going to help unearth what it is that matters most to them, right? And so what I mean by this, these aren't, these aren't necessarily problem-solving questions. These aren't necessarily, you know, challenging questions as well. What we call these are following the meaning questions, right? Where we're really listening for and paying attention to where are the cues, where are the signals, you know, where what somebody's talking about really matters to them and asking directly into that. Um, we, we call these, these cues, these signal signposts of meaning, if you will. Um, they might look like, you know, when somebody's working to, to speak, they might offer um, 
you know, a, a, a statement of identity, right? Or self-label themselves in some sort of way. That's, that's a piece that you could ask into. Somebody might use a metaphor, right? To cr- try to capture a situation that they're trying to explain within this, right? Ask into that as well. If somebody, you know, uses big expression, big emotion, kind of hints at things, but doesn't fully express it, right? Maybe they said, that was the moment that everything changed for me, but they didn't say what changed. Say, right, like you said, that was a, that was a moment for you that, or everything shifted. What changed? Slow it down and ask those questions to really start to work with something different. And then, oh yeah, you want to, Alana, I saw you're going to come in. And is the technique similar to what you just described um, at like the family table scenario, or are there other techniques that you recommend for this particular topic because it is like, I guess, particularly heated? Um, and in my experience, both sides feel like they need to have the last word. They need to make sure that they get their facts out. Um, and it can be hard to hear the other person. Yeah. So I'm actually. Alana, I'm wondering if I can ask you a little bit more about your experience within that and what what that's been like and what has been those points of extreme tension around that. Yeah, I mean, for for me, the example that I was going to bring up has to do with social media, which is a whole other uh, a whole other sphere, um, and I'm really curious to hear your thoughts on that too. Um, I've never really gotten into a verbal argument around the Middle East conflict with someone in person, but I did have experiences during the pandemic where like one with a Jewish person actually, um, where I was posting something on my wall, which I don't do anymore. I don't post about anything political since this happened. Um, that had to do with feeling unsafe with the amount of anti-Semitism that was rampant online. This was the first summer of the pandemic. And suddenly, this person who I went to high school with and was a friend of mine um, posted saying, do you want my hot take on this? And started ranting about um, the rights of Palestinians and how we're not native to the land of Israel and this and this and that. And I uh, went back and forth with him on it, which I'd never gotten into a, a, like a Facebook brawl. And it really deeply affected me. And I kept being like, what you're saying is just historically inaccurate. I'm not saying that I'm insensitive to um, both sides of it, but you're making up facts. Like these are just not correct facts. Um, And it really, really affected me to the point where I had to get off social media for a few weeks. And now I don't feel comfortable uh, posting about anything political and, and then you jump to this past conflict that happened, um, a couple years ago, and I did not engage. I did not post about it. And in fact, it increased this feeling of unsafety for me on social media in the political sphere because, um, you know, David and I are both in, in the entertainment industry, and we noticed a lot of people posting uh, photos that looked like propaganda, and they were looking at the Middle East conflict really through an American or Canadian lens. Um, which I don't think was constructive. And I was like, I cannot look at this. Now I'm starting to judge people because I'm thinking that they buy into this mentality, blah, 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 blah. And I'm only going to talk about this with people who I know are actually affected by this. Jewish, Arab, whatever. I'm not talking to non-Jews about this. So I I brought up so much in there. Um, I guess to start with, let's just address social media 
Um, why do you think that these types of conversations are harder on social media? Should we even be talking about these types of things on social media at all? Well, I think to the question, right, and part of what you shared as well is that engaging in the way that it played out for you was one that carried a lot of hurt to it also, right? And a lot of, a lot of pushback and a lot of, right, like, I'm, I'm actually just going to offer this hot take and push back on these things that really hit to your core as you were expressing just like personal issues of safety and concern around this too, right? And that that's really hard. And so within social media, oftentimes this is the way that charged interactions play out. And so, right, I, I would say if there's a conversation that's happening where you recognize this isn't, this isn't feeling good, or I recognize like we have difference and I want to explore this, I would invite them into, right, a, a conversation outside of it. Usually on, on social media, it's a lot harder, right? You're not able to be in direct, right, like face-to-face -face conversation, whether that's on Zoom or whether that's, you know, um, in, in real, you know, person live there. Um, you're not able to have the type of conversation where you can really slow it down and be present with each other and have the type of exchange that you want. Now, if you know you are engaging within this and somebody offers right this hot take, right? Let's say you're you're doing it in person, right? I, I guess the way in which you might respond and part of it, again, right, slow down the conversation, work to unearth what, why is this person offering this to me right now? What really matters to them and why they're, you know, offering this opinion around it? Ask that question and then really try to prove to them you understand what it is that they're sitting with. You see them through their own lens so that then you can say, and I have some pushback or I want to offer this and I want to name, right? Like what you said for me was hurtful for this case. And if you're able to do it in that sort of way, then the person who shared that might be a lot more open to being able to actually hear what you have to say. And you're going to be working just on a much deeper level with each other about what your core commitments and our concerns are there. And that's hard to do, right? It's hard to pause your own reactions, especially when you feel, you know, somewhat attacked, somewhat fired up, right, around that too. And that's in part why what I say is like, the first step is saying, I want to have this conversation differently. I want to change the course of what this is going to look like. It's really hard to do on social media, especially because there's so many bite-sized, you know, statements and pushback and things like that that's not leading to real conversation that allows people to show and express their complexities and their nuances, right? A statement might come out that you agree with fully. A statement might come out where you think, I kind of agree with this, I kind of don't agree with that, but there's a lot less room for complexity and to be able to share that nuance. And so in order to have these conversations in a much more meaningful way, we want people to be able to lean into the complexity and the nuances that they're holding and that they're carrying and to be able to be in real relationship and exchange with each other around them. Michelle, I'm curious if, if you feel comfortable sharing, if you've ever had or been in a relationship or, or moments in your own life where you consciously had to use these tools or wish you had. Yeah, absolutely. I'm act I, I laugh because I, there was a, a Shabbat dinner um, 
at my my parents' house, and I recognized right. My mom and I were having a conversation. The exact topic, I forget, you know exactly what it was, but I was passionate about it. She was passionate about it as well, and I recognized that I was starting to tense up, and I was getting really frustrated, right, within this too, and that we were just talking past each other. And in that moment, I actually really consciously thought to myself, ah, I know what I have to do to change the nature of this conversation so it can go well. But I, need to, I know I need to make that first step to really make it happen. And so it took, right, like a little bit of like, you got this, Michelle, right, to pause my own reactions for a moment so that I could do the necessary work for the conversation to transform. And for our differences to be able to really be heard by each other and to understand what was happening. So in that moment, right, my mom and I were going back and forth to each other. I said, all right, pause my own reactions. And I just asked her a question based on where it seemed like what she talk, was talking about was really alive for her. And I started to learn more, right? When I took more of a curious posture there rather than judgmental as well, it allowed me to be surprised by what she was sitting with too, right? And then when I was really able to say, okay, so this is what it is for you, right? This is what it is. And she says, yeah, she leans back in her chair. There's a little bit more levity to the conversation as well. And then there's room for me to say, okay. And this other area, that's where my real concern is around it, right? And to be able to just really switch it and change in, in my experience. And, you know, my mom will even say, Michelle, you're a professional and, you know, this type of communication, shouldn't this conversation go I'm like, you're right. All right. I'll, I'll turn it on. And it really does transform the nature of the conversation and the ability to be in real relationship um, with the people in which we're having these conversations with as well. Do you think that there's a difference after um, like a big incident that happens, like a war um, or a bomb going off? Uh, do you think that changes the way that you need to approach it when it's like something more recent and um, that might bring up more in people? Sure. So in moments like that of like really, really acute moments or moments of societal escalation, I think what's really important to note is that the level of intensity that people might be sitting with in terms of their pain, in terms of their closeness to the situation is likely going to be at a much higher degree, right? And it's important to name that and make note of it, of that sensitive, and like be really sensitive of it going into these conversations as well. And from our experience, these very moments when you're able to engage still across our differences, right? People might have different analyses, perspectives, relationships to whatever has just happened there's a lot of value that can still come from people exchanging with each other directly in those moments. Um, an example that I'll give is we were going to be leading a workshop, um, teaching people some of our skills and the content uh, that people would be speaking about in practice of that skill were around gun laws and restrictions in the United States. Earlier that day, there was um, a shooting at a school that happened that was, you know, um, broadcasted in, in national news and was very top of mind for many people coming into the workshop and the conversation we were about to have. 
And so in that moment, right, one thing that I want to name is that because of the different sensitivities and closeness that people might be sitting with connected to that topic, choice is critical. To say, we can still offer this as a conversation to speak to, or if that just feels like it's not really going to be possible for you to engage in the conversation right now, that's okay. And we can talk about this other piece of content. So first of all, right, like I mentioned before, people making the choice around, I want to be in this conversation in this moment for that autonomy to be present is necessary. And in in our experience and in my experience within that workshop in particular, people felt like I want, I want to engage. There were some who didn't, right? But for, for many, they said, I need space to be able to talk about this and to be able to talk about this in a way where I can feel witnessed in what I'm holding and what I'm experiencing and what I'm feeling around this right now. And also to do so in that moment then also allows for a larger element of understanding for people who see things differently that then is going to lead to more well-rounded and creative problem solving to the situations that we're facing, right? Oftentimes, the differences that we hold are not going to go away, right? Unless and until they're addressed directly. And when we're able to do that, it can be really transformative to being able to move forward with more creative solutions to the problems that we face, communally, societally, etc. around that too. And choice is important and especially sensitive to that when we're at points of acute you know, sensitivity or societal escalation as well. Any other questions or pushback or anything like that that you're sitting with? I'd love to, right, like, hear in case, you know, because, like, very open to anything there. I mean, I, I was just curious, like, it, it all sounds very kumbaya-esque and very sweet and loving. And I was like, what happens when you really have problematic things? Like someone who's very, very far to the right, where it's talking about, you know, I don't even think these people should. It, it, it sounds like bringing these people together is a bunch of nice liberal progressive people talking about things that they may disagree with as opposed to some very fundamental differences that are I, I can't imagine people will be willing to cross that threshold at times mm-hmm. so say say an example of this um someone who doesn't believe that trans people exist or that they should even be accepted in society someone who doesn't think homosexuality is let's, is let's a stick real with thing. one let's let's stick with yeah. one within this okay so one thing I want to name, right, is that oftentimes when you said, like, this sounds really nice, right, with, like, kumbaya within a liberal bubble, right? Sometimes the way that we might be thinking about this, especially if we cut – David, would you, are you consider yourself to be liberal? Yes. Okay. So sometimes what happens when we fall into patterns of real – polarization within our our community not only are there patterns right like we talked about of antagonistic conversation and avoiding these conversations together but within the pattern of self-siloing and being in our echo chambers there's real costs that come from that that also include really really at times right like mischaracterizing and vilifying people who exist outside of that echo chamber. I used to be very guilty of that. And I've changed a lot in the past year. Same Uh, here. What what were you guilty of and what changed for you? 
Well, so a couple of years ago, I was living in Vancouver, which is very lefty, and I was surrounded by all lefty people. And I'd come to the point where I was used to hearing people talk about things only in really one way. So, like, I would just like tense up if I heard heard someone say anything that was more right wing or even moderate. Um, and one of my roommates at the last place that I lived um, in Vancouver was from the East Coast um, and was very left wing and the way that she kind of thought of things was, oh, if you're right, you are kind of like a villain. And I, I found myself adopting that mentality subconsciously. And then when I when I moved back east, um, someone called me on it and was like, you know, like it's important to actually hear both sides because otherwise you're really in that echo chamber. And not all people are bad. Like they're not evil. They just have a different perspective. They're coming from a different point of view. Maybe they value different things about a right-wing cause but that doesn't make them, you know, some people could be a conservative, but they could also support gay rights as an, one example. And in my head, I had it so black and white because politics were very, very new to me. I did not grow up really knowing a lot about it. And it was only in my adulthood. And then I was really exposed to more left-wing so I kind of had said in my mind, conservative equals X, Y, Z. I couldn't see the nuance. I couldn't see the gray. And the more that I've engaged with people, I'm realizing, okay, I was looking at it from a more Americanized lens. And in Canada, the conservative party is nowhere near as right as um, the Republican party in the States. Um, and so knowing that and realizing, oh, I can have friends that vote conservative um, and that doesn't make them bad people I should probably actually have those conversations more because otherwise I'm only hearing my own thoughts repeated back mm -hmm. at me that was very mm -hmm. life-changing for me I mean yeah I really appreciate you you bringing that in and what I I want to like highlight around that right is that sometimes when we hear people make um, or use use particular words right we'll make snap judgments and we think oh you must be one of those this must be how you think it's going to be really hard to have a conversation with you if that's the type of words and language that you're using or even position that you're holding. And over time, what happens when we're in these different echo chambers is that people can become really um, baffling to one another, right, as well. And, and like you might think, how could anybody possibly think like they do? And then it also becomes back and forth as well. You, you also then believe that they are going to think the same way about that you're thinking about them as you, but even even worse, right? And so there's a real a real tension that just continues to build also from the ways in which we dismiss and we write off others as malicious, loony, bigoted within this. Oftentimes when people want to come into conversation across political divides, they're not doing so to try to do a gotcha moment, right? Or for malicious reasons. They're doing so because, right, like, they want to overcome some of these patterns and the costs to them as well. Again, whether that's repairing relationship, you know, wanting to be witnessed in full, or even, right, like influence someone else's thinking. And so in those moments, if we lose the will and the capability to reach beyond our echo chambers, right, we're actually also just not even going to be as politically effective as we might want to be if, right, we're not able to speak to somebody who thinks really differently than us. And so it's true, right? Like even within our seemingly like-minded enclaves, real differences can pose what seems like real threats, where like every week the smallest difference can lead to, you know, a, a, a big point of tension that feels almost impossible to get past. And, right, like 
within larger differences as well, those need to be able to be addressed too. And so what I'm talking about here is not necessarily in terms of what do we do, sorry, my dog is barking, only, um, you know, in, in the moments where it's within our own, our own echo chamber, but really how do we get beyond that? And so part of that, right, that first step, slowing down, pausing our own reactions and assumptions about what the other person might be holding within whatever statement that they made and really lean in to try to extract and unearth what it is that matters to them in this moment. What are they scared of? What are they concerned of? What are they motivated by? And once you have a true understanding there, rather than making snap judgments, you're going to be able to start working with, right, like who the real person is. Not oftentimes what is the overcharacterized version of what we think they might be because of the language that they're using within that too. And again, right, like once somebody sees like, you get me, you're able to do that work and they feel like I'm understood, you're going to be able to push, push back if you want, if that's the goal of your conversation. It's not everybody's goal, but if that's the goal of your conversation, it creates room to be able to do so. And so that's just why I want to highlight, like, and I think there's also a lot of assumptions that are made, especially right, like within bridge building work, sometimes there's a overrepresentation of people who might identify as progressive or as liberal within that space. And so they think, oh, right, like, we're here, we're going to talk about this, but where are the people who are more conservative, right, as well? And to that I want to name, right, that there's actually, you know, just as many people on, you know, in, in the conservative space, and we, we work with both people who are conservative and are liberal and centrist, right, within, within a lot of the different political spectrums and, and everything in between people who wouldn't identify as, as any of that. And people want to be having these conversations with each other. And whether you're conservative and whether you're liberal, we're all following, falling into these same patterns, right? And it, it really takes this switch to say, I want to do this differently, whether you're liberal, whether you're conservative, to come together. And a big part of that is pausing our own assumptions, getting curious, and allowing ourselves to have the room ourselves to be surprised by the other person that we might be speaking with. Thank you so much, Michelle, for all of your expertise, and we hope to chat with you again soon. Yeah, be happy to. Thanks so much. Appreciate it. Next up, stay tuned for our Naha segment. And now it's time to show for our Nachas of the Week, that thing that makes us feel Jewish, good-ish about uh, stuff, life, the past week. Alana, what's on your radar? On my radar is a podcast that I listened to on my drive home yesterday. I was in Toronto for a few days. Um, so it's on the Ezra Klein show, not Canadian, but Jewish. And I found it a really fascinating topic. It's the most interesting episode of his podcast. The episode is called This Conversation About the Reading Mind is a Gift. And he had on uh, Marianne Wolf, who's a researcher and scholar at UCLA School of Education and Information Studies. And basically what they talked about is how we consume so much information in the modern age through scrolling on our phones, social media, articles, reading for work, blah, blah, blah. But how much of that are we actually taking in in the way that people do when they're reading a print book? And they talked about attention spans and how it's affecting young children and all sorts of stuff like that. So be sure to check that out if that's something that interests you. I found it really fascinating. Absolutely. That sounds really cool. Excellent. David, what's on your radar? 
Well, Indiana Jones is back and looking to kick some Nazi butts. So the fifth movie actually starts with Indiana in 1944 with a castle swarming with Nazis. And rather than sitting down and having them talk over their differences, Indy just kicks some good old-fashioned Zieg Heiling Tuchus. Now, you might ask, how will Harrison Ford be able to play the younger Indy since, you know, he is becoming himself an artifact? Well... There's a good answer. It's good old-fashioned CGI, the best money can buy. And this still doesn't have a title for the next upcoming Indiana Jones movie, so I thought we would call it Indiana Jones and the Secrets of Digital De-Aging. Better than Raiders of the uh, Found Ark. Or Indiana Jones, Age of Ultron. <laughs> I was waiting for someone to give me an, a, a, some other options for titles. Uh, today, actually, uh, as we were recording on Thursday, it is... Um, Thanksgiving in the United States of America, our neighbors to the south. Um, I spent many years celebrating Thanksgiving when I was in the U.S. Um, I found it fascinating um, that a quick scroll today through the various um, denominational websites um, and their respective Torah um, shines really a light and a lens on how each denomination sees um, the world around them. Um, and it's more interesting that you would think that like, so just as an example, uh, if you go to Ritual Well, um, which is uh, run by the Reconstructionist um, movement, Reconstructing Judaism, they have like three articles, right, um, that are interesting. Eight, eight steps of, of Hachnasat Orchim, how to welcome guests, appreciating our elders, this land belongs to no one, Thanksgiving prayers honoring our ancestors and native people's land. So that's interesting. Hadar.org, um, which is independent, um, has barely anything. There's like two matching resources dealing with Thanksgiving. It's like a weekly Dvartora and a question about like whether, you know, how to deal with Thanksgiving in a non-kosher like family member's home. But then you go to like YU Torah online. There are 32 shiurim, 32 articles or um, audio lectures from rabbis about Thanksgiving. And it's like the general, thank, celebrating Thanksgiving and the general parameters of chukat akum, like the, the laws of or the ways of non-Jewish practi practitioners. Um, do turkeys need a masora? Do turkeys need to be kosher in a specific way? How do you do, deal with the turkey kosher thing? Um, the... Uh, what was it? Did the pilgrims celebrate Hanukkah, gaining a new perspective on an age-old holiday? Uh, you know, just celebrating Thanksgiving between Thanksgiving and Hanukkah, the nature of Hoda'ah, of thanks, of giving thanks. Um, Turkey Day, uh, American Jewish religious life in the 18th to 19th century, standing on the shoulders of giants in honor of Thanksgiving Day. So can Jews celebrate Thanksgiving? All of this stuff. And you can see that there's clearly a very interesting lens and relationship that uh, the writers of Yeshiva University's uh, website on Torah have to this grappling of with Thanksgiving, because it's clearly a secular holiday, um, but it has deep, you know, Jewish possibilities. Uh, and whether or not it's a Jewish or non-Jewish holiday can possibly or not be. Um, whatever the case may be, I wish the Americans who are celebrating Thanksgiving a happy Thanksgiving. Um, enjoy your turkey, enjoy your stuffing, enjoy your cranberry sauce, and, um, you know, learn something Jewish about the Thanksgiving. I know my rabbi, the one Thanksgiving, the first Thanksgiving I ever had was the, was a Thanksgiving I had with my rabbi. Um, he happened to be in New York, in Boston visiting his daughter. And he did, he said, it's a very Jewish thing. And he said, we should go around the table and talk about what we're thankful for. And we did. And I think about this, you know, a lot around Thanksgiving. So happy Thanksgiving, go learn some Torah about Thanksgiving. And that's my nachos. 
Thank you for listening to Bonjour Chai for the week ending November 26th, Shabbat Parashat Toldot. The show is produced and edited by Zach Kaufman. The executive producer for CJN Podcasts is Michael Freeman. Our music is by SoCalled. We are a project of the Jewish Living Lab and are distributed by the CJN Podcast Network. You can listen to all our past episodes on our page at thecjn.ca slash bonjour, and you can subscribe to the podcast and automatically receive all episodes on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We'd love it if you told a friend about Bonjour Chai, actually. It's one of the best ways we get new listeners. As always, please email us with comments and ideas and feedback. Bonjour at thecjn.ca. I'm Avi Feingold. I'm Ilana Zakon. And I'm David Sklar. The Dunfield Retirement Residence offers customized living options to complement your independent active lifestyle. Welcome home. Welcome to the Dunfield. Visit us at thedunfield.com to book a personal tour.